people in general kind of don't like rules. You know? The question was earlier. No. People don't like rules, right? You know, um, there are some people who say that they are rule-oriented people. Right? You know, like, I need to have rules in order to be able to function in life. You're confessing, too. I was, see, I wasn't going to bring that up. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, isn't it true that sort of type A people who are really into rules really only like to follow their own rules? Mm. What? No. <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble now. Uh, <laughs> danger, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. You know, we in New England especially are relatively independent, right? And we rebel against the idea of the notion of someone else's rules. Uh, we, we don't really want other people's help. We might be willing to give it to somebody else if they ask us for it. Or we might even see a need and then, like, actually reach out to them to help them. But if someone says, are you okay? Do you need some help? What are the two words? I'm... Fine. Right. <laughs> Lies. Okay. So, I'm fine. I don't need help. I don't want your advice. You know, yet we as Christians, we find ourselves living in the tension of being pulled by our own desires and our own will, and at the same time being called by the Spirit of God to submit to God's leadership. Submit. There's another word we don't like. Right? Because it means a surrendering of our own will and our own way to someone else. Right? Um, we think about uh, the marriage covenant, for instance. Okay? Uh, more often than not, when I'm engaged in some premarital counseling with a couple, they're like, we don't want that submit stuff in there. Take that out. You know, the problem is that the marriage relationship is supposed to be the model for the relationship between Christ and his church. So just as the church submits to Jesus' authority, Jesus died and gave himself for us in an ultimate act of humility. So we find ourselves in this place where we're being pulled by our own desires and at the same time being called by the Spirit of God and to come under his care and to accept his salvation. The scriptures today speak a lot of rules, right? A lot of rules, a lot of laws. Um, in Leviticus, have you ever actually sat down and read Leviticus? Like end-to-end -end Leviticus? Um, there are a lot of rules in there. A lot of laws. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them make sense to us nowadays. And a lot of them are like, what? <laughs> How do I know which ones to follow? We'll get to that. Um, in the Old Testament... There are about 633 laws. Some scholars say 631. Some say 633. Because I'm going for a big number, I'm going for the scholars that say 633. Because, you know, two makes a big difference there. Mm -hmm. um, but you can break down the laws found in the Old Testament into moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. All kinds of ways to transgress. Okay. How about the Ten Commandments? We know those laws at least, right? And anybody over 45 here can't see or hear the Ten Commandments without hearing Charlton Heston, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you 
You know, society and culture has decided that um, these are commandments, but if the right conditions are met, then they can be broken. They don't really matter. We take some, we leave some, we try to say times have changed, God and what he says must have changed too. But when we start rewriting scripture, haven't we taken God off the throne? And haven't we taken him away from the authorship of his word and replaced that with our own person on the seat of the throne, with our own name as the author of scripture and are we qualified to do that? The word of the Lord stands and it doesn't change. In a time where lots of things are shifting and changing and people say things like, well, my truth is different than your truth. Isn't it actually comforting to have an actual grounding, a ground truth from which our lives can be built back into what the Lord would have us to be? Something we can put our weight down on, something that we can rely upon. The idea of the law might sound stifling to us, but the psalmist reflects something very different to us. So first few verses of the psalm that we read today, notice how the person who is following the law of God is reacting. Happy are they who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, or sat in the seat of the scornful. Happy. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night. So they're happy. They're delighting in the law of the Lord. You should have seen the looks on those kids' faces when we actually found gold up in the brook. It was cold, it was wet, it rained all night, everybody was done and sick of it. But man, once they saw some gold glitter in the pan and it was the real thing, the authentic article, they were like, oh, let's keep going. All of a sudden they weren't cold anymore. <laughs> they had found something worthy of their time and of great value. Verse 3, they are like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in due season, with leaves that do not wither, everything they do shall prosper. That doesn't sound stifling. That sounds life-giving. That sounds like the perfect conditions for the tree, that's us, to thrive and do exactly what it is supposed to be and do. So the same is really true for us when we finally come to the end of ourselves and step into the life that God has called us to. We experience his grace and his love and his salvation and everything changes. So we come back to that tension I mentioned at the beginning and Paul outlines it in the epistle lesson to please God or to please mortals. And if we really think about it, so much of life can be broken down into that question. Those two roads. Our motives, our actions, our words, our priorities to please God or to please mortals. To love and serve the Lord or to love and serve ourselves. 
This is a question that we ask ourselves regardless of how long we've been following Jesus because, you know, the tension and the struggle and the choice is always before us. Even if we're brand new at learning about the Lord or if we've been doing it for a while. Will we follow our own way or will we surrender to God's way? The two roads lead to very different outcomes in our lives. So what's the point of all this law talk? Anyways, right? I see some eyes glazing over. I've already seen two yawns. I gotta tell you, you know. No. One of them was my son. No. <laughs> 633 laws and three different types of laws. Why? Be holy as I am holy. We read it in the Leviticus lesson this morning. Starts out with that. Be holy as I am holy. It's God's command to be holy. It's his expectation that we will be holy. And it is necessary for us to have a relationship with him to be holy. It's necessary for our salvation. Man's true spiritual condition prior to salvation is a total absence of a proper relationship with God. It's broken. It's broken off completely. Following our way against God's way is sin. Oswald Chambers in uh, My Utmost for His Highest puts it this way. Sin is a fundamental relationship. It's not wrongdoing, but wrong being. It is a deliberate and determined independence from God. God, I don't need you. I'm doing it my own way. Whether we actively tell God that or we passively do it by just sort of doing our own thing and ignoring the fact that he's there saying, hey, through his word and by his spirit. A person cannot redeem themselves. Redemption is the work of God. And here's where Jesus comes in. It should be a relief to us that we don't redeem ourselves. Because wouldn't we always be worrying if we did it right? Like, I, I wouldn't get it right. <laughs> I tell you. God's plan is perfect. His ways are way better than mine. And I love being able to rest in that fact that I don't have to worry about it. Jesus didn't break any of the 633 laws. He didn't break the Ten Commandments. Even in his head or in his heart, much less outwardly. And this made his death a perfect and spotless sacrifice and able to actually take our sin, mine and yours, upon him. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus actually said the law was perfect. Okay? Um, he said that heaven and earth would pass away before the law would fail. And then in the very next verse, he says he came to fulfill the law. So what does that mean? Paul the Apostle points it out in Romans that we are actually 
released from the law of sin and death because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In chapter 7, verse 6, he says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So the old way was this legalistic, you've got to keep them all, or you're toast. And no one could do it. It wasn't possible. The goal was relationship with God. The goal was holiness, which allowed for the relationship to take place. But it wasn't possible. We don't keep moral law as a way of earning our way to God. To earn salvation, it would be to save ourselves by our works. And we would have to be perfect because God is perfect. God is holy. And instead, we are changed by the presence of God's spirit to having a desire to keep God's laws. Because God isn't after this begrudging obedience, like, okay. He is after a whole new kind of obedience in our lives. It's an obedience that comes from love and delight and wanting to honor God. We love him because he first loved us. So Christians keep his commands, not because it's the law, but because they love God and they want to be like him. In Jesus, we find relationship with God, not legalism. This is why um, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment, it was a question that was born in a legalistic trap. They were trying to say to him, all right, Jesus, you've outsmarted the Sadducees. You've outsmarted a few of us, but now we got you. <laughs> they were sad, you see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, 633 laws which one's most important when in reality for all of sin and all have fallen short of the glory of God if you break one you've broken them all and Jesus doesn't endo on them doesn't answer their question directly and he says Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is held under and up by all these two commandments. They encapsulate it all. Those two commandments indicate that God isn't up there with a stick trying to club us because we messed up. He wants relationship with us. To love the Lord your God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself indicates that God's plan is for us to have relationship with him and with one another. Jesus completes and keeps the law that we never could. He lifts its weight off of our shoulders. He takes our sin that prevents us from meeting the standard of God's holiness and he actually clothes us in his holiness. When we trust in Jesus instead of ourselves, we receive the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus on our behalf. When God the Father looks at us then, he doesn't see our sin. Rather, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Jesus literally says, she's mine. He's mine. Their debt of sin is paid fully. So we were created for relationship. Go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. Adam and Eve in the garden. 
They walked with God. They knew his presence in a way that was beautiful and powerful. And then what happened when sin entered the world? That relationship was broken, and they actually hid from God. And then God spilled the first blood to cover the nakedness by killing animals and creating clothing for them. We were created for that relationship with God and with one another, and when the relationship went sideways because of sin, God made the way for the restoration of that relationship with his son Jesus. We can never live a perfect enough life to restore that relationship ourselves. It's not a set of divine scales up there weighing the good against the bad and leaving us to hope that we have enough good to make it in. Because of Jesus, we lay down our own attempts at perfection. And in humility, we realize that we need Jesus' holiness and his righteousness. It is in Jesus that we can answer God's call to be holy as he is holy. As we learn to tell our story with God over the next several weeks, we need to recognize some things and ask ourselves some searching questions. The Bible is God's story of redemption and restoration of the relationship that was lost between God and humanity. Where are you in that story? Are you searching for God? Do you have a sense that he is calling you? Have you trusted Jesus and taken his holiness and his righteousness as your own? How does God intersect with your life and your life's story? Have you come to the end of yourself and are you allowing God to take the lead? Lord, thank you for your story. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin and washing your hands of us and walking away. Lord, we recognize that we were created for a relationship with you. And that when we had sinned against you and become the subjects of evil and death, that you sent Jesus. So we thank you for that gift. We return in our minds and our hearts to that fundamental understanding. And with great thanksgiving, we offer our thanks for who Jesus is and, and what he has done for us. Lord, may we live into that ever increasingly. May our thoughts, words, and actions be shaped by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that holiness would be that which we are longing for. We would have nothing between you and us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and